Conversations around the need for carbon capture and storage is gaining momentum on the global scale, and the G20 is no exception. Just recently, the G20 International Seminar on CCUS was held in Bangalore, India, this year's host country for the G20 presidency, convening industry, research organizations, and public sector stakeholders interested in CCS and sustainable strategic planning as a low-carbon transition gets underway. To speak to us about that and more is Tim Dixon, General Manager with the IEA GHG. Thanks for joining me, Tim. Pleased to be here. So before we get uh, get into the seminar that you attended a few weeks ago in India, you yourself have um, a bit of a broad background in getting involved in international policy conversations, and I'm kind of interested in your background back when you worked with the with the UK government previously around the the G8. Can you perhaps give us an overview of what the narrative around CCS was uh, and how it's evolved? Uh, today as the G20 conversations get underway. Uh, thanks, thanks, Ruth. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for the invite. And I've, I've been very lucky to just be in the right place at the right time, so to speak, that I was seconded into the UK government, Department of Trade and Industry, for six years. And it coincided with the UK presidency of the G8, as it was then. And Tony Blair was the prime minister. And he wanted to make climate change a key theme of the G8 that year, 2005. And he went to the Department of Environment, DEFRA, and said, what's the biggest new thing we can make a difference with? And we just had the IPCC special report on CCS coming out that year. But DEFRA, with a blank sheet of paper on climate change mitigation, said there's this relatively new thing called carbon capture and storage. And so a small team were put together in in all of the g8 themes and topics there were other topics as well but it focused on climate change and on africa that was gordon brown's priority and under climate change um one of the key themes became carbon capture and storage so working on that i must give credit to matt webb from defra and bill senior who was seconded in and myself, who was seconded in, and we worked up five initiatives on CCS. And with that, this is significant because it was the first time that the G8 had prioritised climate change, and it's the first time that CCS had appeared in a G8 uh, initiative communicating uh, agreements as well. So that was quite important because it was putting CCS on the highest political level for the G8 countries, plus the the UK invited some of the major economies as well. So having to explain CCS from the beginning, from the basics, and then, you know, it was a good exercise and it came out at the end from the, in the Glen Eagles plan of action with five initiatives, um, one of which on capture ready, one on which was on helping developing countries, um, endorsing the carbon sequestration leadership forum, which was already in existence at that point. Um, so that's why, um, yeah, that, that was the start of CCS in these initiatives. Uh, I, after that, the next big one was the G8 in 2008 that Japan hosted. And that's the one where with CCS, they agreed to go for 20 large scale projects by 2010. And 
with the use of broad deployment by 2020. So obviously we didn't, you know, the world didn't make that, but it started that momentum off that's uh, carried on in different ways uh, since then. Was it an equal balance of, of curiosity with optimism? Is that is that kind of what led to those commitments then? I think it was curiosity in 2005. The IPCC special report really helped. Um, we had other movements in, in things like the London Protocol as well. So there was, and it built into optimism when people and countries and policymakers started realizing the potential mitigation of the role. Um, and Nick Stern's uh, report as well came out, I think that was 2007, the economic impacts of climate change and the role CCS was in that as well, I recall. And of course, the, the, with that optimism um, at its peak almost in 2008-2009, stimulated the Australian government to start the Global CCS Institute, which was launched in, uh, in 2009. And you were part of that origin story. But now you're with the IAGHG. Would it be fair to say you you primarily focus on uh, international policy in your current role? What we do as an organisation is provide the technical evidence base on issues uh, all around all aspects of carbon capture, utilisation and storage, and increasingly on the, in, including direct air capture and engineered CDR as well. So we're not policy prescriptive, and we leave that to our friends in the International Energy Agency uh, in Paris. We are policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. So our role is going around and using our technical outputs as inputs to policy developments. And um, there is a, an interesting story and good outcome that is a, uh, relating to the clean development mechanism. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can unpack that now. What What is the clean development mechanism or CDM as it's often referred to and how is CCS considered uh, within that? The clean development mechanism was a policy tool under the Kyoto Protocol under the UNFCCC. The Kyoto Protocol had emissions reductions targets on developed countries, not on developing countries, but for developing countries, the clean development mechanism rewarded low carbon project activities by allowing them to generate carbon credits that developed countries could use and had a value that stimulated low carbon projects. And many thousands of projects were stimulated. The carbon credits were used, especially in the European system. There was a genuine market, genuine projects were created. And in 2005, carbon capture and storage, two projects were proposed and this uh, resulted in a hesitation by those running the clean development mechanism on whether carbon capture and storage should be allowed. Because um, it's a new technology, it's different to wind and solar and things where the emissions abatements are immediate and direct uh, and easier to, to sort of conceptualise in a policy sense. But here's a technology that with big mitigation potential, but the CO2 is left in the ground afterwards. Um, so that started then five years of intense negotiations. It was always one of the top three contentious topics in the UNFCCC COP meetings. Uh, IAGHG, um, before my time with it, 
started looking at what it could do to help with evidence base, we produced a report on methodology issues, how they could be addressed in the CDM for CCS. Um, then it produced, well, when I joined it, uh, we produced a report on the market impacts, because one of the concerns was about flooding the CDM market with credits from CCS projects. We showed that wasn't a, a, a valid concern. Uh, there was expert inputs needed by the UNFCTC, but the negotiations were characterised by a small number of countries who did not want CCS in, and a lot of countries who did want it in, and more countries who didn't care either way. Um, and so the real sort of breakthrough came in 2010 when Mexico hosted the COP and realised that this was an ongoing issue of con that hadn't been resolved even though there have been several workshops under the UNFCCC and, and different mandates. And so they stimulated a work programme for that following year and identified the key issues of concern and organised a technical workshop in Abu Dhabi in 2011 in the September to address these uh, about six or eight issues of, of concern. And that, what that enabled was IAGHG to then draw upon what we've learned as a collective global CCS community since the 2005 IPCC report. We'd learned a lot more and we could address these issues. So IAGHG, we used our expert networks on the different aspects, monitoring, modeling, risk assessment of storage, et cetera, to deal with the specific issues relating to them. And then we were able to input those into a technical workshop in Abu Dhabi. And that was also a good environment to do that in because it had the main negotiators for and against CCS in there, but outside of their negotiating remits. So they could ask just genuine questions of you know curiosity or however you want to term that. So there was no um, policy line for them to follow. They could just genuinely ask questions of genuine experts. And that really, we just the end result was we ticked off all of the technical issues of concern and we're just left with a policy issue of long-term liability for storage and that enabled the UNFCCC secretariat uh, and their consultants to draft draft rules for CCS with ready for that COP in uh, the autumn of 2011 that was COP17 in Durban ready uh, with a draft document and suggestions on how to deal with that long-term liability, which is a policy decision. So that was that was a good uh, example of IAGHG putting their technical input in. And the Global CCS Institute was just coming into the arena as well then uh, and, and contributing. Um, and then at that COP, I got I got seconded back into UK government as an advisor and got asked by the because the UK was still part of the EU then. Um, and I got asked to be the lead negotiator for the EU in the CCS-CDM negotiations. And I was very happy to do it. But what it meant was also I was in the room at the table with a great team of European lawyers with me, able to head off immediately any misinformation provided by those who did not want CCS and the CDM with all the, the technical knowledge that we had. And the policy issue on the long-term liability then was resolved by giving the host developing countries the choice whether they take 
that long-term liability for the surrender of credits, should there be seepage or not? And if they didn't want to take that, it went with the owners of the credits at that point in the future. So that was the policy solution that came out uh, of that at the end. So a good outcome, um, really important because it was, you know, a big policy mechanism, and this created a precedent for CCS on how it could be treated in such a large carbon credit generating mechanism, financial mechanism. And it also set a sort of in the requirements in the modalities and procedures, created a default sort of regulatory framework for developing countries to follow in implementing CCS in their own countries. Very significant milestone, I, in my view, for CCS in the history of CCS. It still created the precedent. And one of the things I do try and do going forwards is um, remind people that all that hard work went in by a lot of people and was agreed formally under the UNFCCC back in 2011. So that's important, for example, now um, in the discussions with Article 6, when they're looking at removals, the hard work on the CO2 geological storage part of engineered removals in terms of accounting has been done. Rules are there ready to be taken off the shelf and, uh, and followed or reused as such. I mean, it sounds as though initially you were there to clear the misinformation and the reputational or the lack of credible reputation that CCS had, folks just not wanting it in the CDM, to now evolving to more nuanced conversations around CCS. So not whether or not we should use CCS, but how it should be used. Do you think we've gotten to that point? Um, I think we, we have. Uh, I think you're right on that. And back then, the focus was more on CCS on power. And since then, as you say, it's become more nuanced. Or real, the realisation that CCS on industrial sources is uh, equally as important and more politically acceptable because there are alternatives for low carbon power, uh, as you know. So the focus has shifted more and more onto CCS on industrial sources uh, since then. So fast forward to a few weeks ago, you uh, you attended the G20 International Seminar on CCUS, which was hosted in India. As we mentioned earlier, India is the is the host president of, of G20 this year, rather. What were your key takeaways from the event? Um, I know that you presented. Uh, were you there to just keep a pulse on things um, or was there a message that you wanted to impart to the stakeholders that were there? So, it, yeah, it was interesting for several reasons, actually. The, the G20 um, CCUS seminar. So, yeah, all credit to India as the presidency of the G20 and the Energy Transitions Working Group that was meeting at that time wanted this uh, CCUS seminar. In, in the G8, G7 as it is now, G20 processes, it's a good it's good practice to have these sorts of more technically focused workshops with the other G20, G7 countries, G8 countries involved to sow the seeds, to gather inputs, to gather different views from other countries, if you're thinking of having initiatives in certain areas. So I found it very promising that India wanted to have one, this, this event on CCUS to start with. And it wasn't like there were lots of other ones on at the same time. Um, it was this and the energy transitions uh, uh, working group. So the, the processes for G8 
and G20, you, you start off with initiatives, you get lots of soundings in, there's meetings of working groups, your, the civil servants or diplomats are nicknamed Sherpas because you end up at a summit at the end and they go around and there's lots of diplomatic work and effort normally to arrive at the draft texts that are then agreed by energy ministers, climate ministers and the world leaders at the end. So this was a very good way of starting that process off. Also, India um, hasn't been that active on CCS for quite a few years. Um, and so it's very interesting that they chose to do this as well. And after the UK G8 in 2005, the UK government put a lot of effort into uh, helping, trying to help China and India get moving on CCS. With China, that resulted in the NZEC project that got UK and European money to coordinate uh, CCS activities in China. But India didn't really um, have that same level of success. Now, India is an interesting country because it's largely coal power based. Uh, half of its CO2 emissions come from coal power. It's challenged, it's a developing country it's, and it's growing rapidly and its growth is constrained by electricity provision and many of its population don't, still don't have electricity. So those are its priorities. And here it is uh, with a new perspective in my view. And as I looked at this G20 event, I realized that there was two new significant roadmaps out in India on CCUS. Uh, one from the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas for CCS in the oil and gas sector and actually naming a CO2 EUR demonstration project they want to proceed with. And then one from this organization called NITI AOG. I think it stands for the National Institution for the Transformation of India. And this is a very high level institution, the chairman of which is the prime minister. And this produced in November last year, a roadmap for a policy framework for CCUS across all sectors. And that was the basis and now the input from India into that G20 CCUS event. The, the event itself was organized by the, the, the National State Utility, NTPC, and the Ministry of Power, who historically have focused more on CO2 utilization potential. But there was also, it became clear, they recognized that the, there's so much CO2 they need to deal with in order to reach their net zero by 2070 policy, which was announced at COP26. They can't just rely on utilisation, they've got to look at CO2 storage as well. So all of this coming together for India, and all credit to the presidency for doing this, is an example then for the other G20 countries, because half of them are developing countries that may not have CCS on their radar, so to speak, or on their policy agendas for their countries. So um, the fact that the event happened was significant, the background and the inputs to it were significant. Um, and my message there really, I think I gave an update on the outcomes from the UNFCCC recently, COP26, COP27, but I wanted to promote international cooperation primarily on CCUS, thinking about giving them material that they can build into an initiative at the end. And I must give credit here to Juho Lipponen from the CCUS initiative. He helped NTPC organize the event and the speaker list. And we've both had this mindset of a Q&A session at the end, helping to draft ideas that 
could be used for initiatives in the G20 process going through this year. So all credit to you for that. And I wanted to put in there international cooperation because, as you know, being with the Global CCS Institute, it's a characteristic of CCS. It's very important. It's a larger scale technology. Um, we need this international cooperation uh, and there's nice examples we can point to and there's, it enables countries who are not moving yet on it to draw upon other countries who are moving, who are leading on it through international cooperation to help them accelerate at the learning curve. And the conversations that you've held, including the dialogues stemming from the, the Q&A, is the idea that these will now help further discussions in the G20? I guess, what's your target of success? So that there is a narrative in the G20 uh, Energy Minister's Agreement. Uh, there's further meetings this summer that the, the G20 India is hosting for those. And very helpfully, they're coinciding with Clean Energy Ministerial and Mission Innovation meetings. And to see the Indian presidency putting forward draft text that explicitly in includes and encourages countries to move forwards on CCUS would be an excellent outcome. And I think it's possible, it's quite feasible to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and India, I think, as you've noted, is, I guess, technically it's a developing country, but it has a, it has a significant economy. For developing countries, can you speak to how they'd be able to step into the CCS arena from a funding perspective? Are there um, funding mechanisms that are uh, available? And how do you see that unfolding in, in the future or or even currently? Um, that's a good question. And that's all, all, often a, the first question that developing countries ask after they ask, can we do it in our country, which is one of my favorite questions. How can they be supported to start to do their assessments of whether they've got geological storage, the sourcing, matching of the CO2 sources with the potential storage, et cetera. And what we've had to date uh, for the last decade is some two trust funds, one from the World Bank and one from the Asian Development Bank. And they've been used really well. So thanks to the donor countries, and the UK, Norway, and Australia, who, who put the money into those. And they've funded these early stage assessments and then they funded some centers of excellence to be established in, for example, South Africa and in Indonesia. And once you get to that point, those countries then have a center of excellence to draw upon for the expertise and knowledge that helps put CCS into their uh, national uh, climate policy, uh, their nationally determined contributions to the uh, Paris Agreement. Um, and also acts as a focus for this international cooperation for those centres of excellence to draw in from other countries and other centres of excellence the expertise and knowledge and information that they can then apply in their own country and, and learn from themselves. Now there's a slight problem with those two trust funds in that they're coming to an end um, with the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and I very much hope that the donor countries and more donor countries potentially step forward to renew those because they're the only ones really active at that level for developing countries. There is the 
theoretical potential of the Green Climate Fund as well, uh, which actually does have CCS explicitly in its uh, mandate, in its governing instrument that set it up in 2011, is explicitly mentioned, but it has not funded any CCS activities yet, but it's there in theory for developing countries to access uh, as well. And it's got um, you know, a lot of money, uh, hundreds of millions to spend on mitigation and adaptation projects in developing countries. Aside from, from what you've just mentioned in terms of funding mechanisms in emerging uh, economies, are there any other major obstacles, perhaps not even limited to developing countries? Uh, are there any ob obstacles that you think need to, to be addressed, whether it's tied to dialogue and coordination? I mean, you mentioned the SEMCCUS. What are some obstacles that, that you think maybe are kind of flying under the radar that probably have a bigger impact than some may assume? I think there's several that um, have meant that CCS hasn't progressed as fast as that 2008 G8 agreement, which wanted 20 projects by 2010. Um, I think because of its nature as a technology that's large scale in terms of capital investment, so it's, it's not like starting off with small solar PV panels or wind turbines, it's larger to start with. Um, and such investment often extends beyond the political horizons of any particular administration in any country. So that sort of works against it inherently. Um, I think the association with fossil fuels continues in policymakers and some environmental NGOs and some public's minds because there's you know a growing movement against fossil fuels in general as the as the causes of climate change and and in public meetings I always point out that the climate doesn't care about what we take out of the ground the climate cares about what we put into the atmosphere but that's a nuance and a, and a caveat that doesn't really come over in general in in the very welcome motivation and movement on climate change that you know is growing publicly um, so, we, so we need to keep on with that sort of general message that it's it really is a mitigation technology that's really needed um, but that's hard getting that out to policymakers because so many of them are in democratic countries that rely upon being voted in at the next election and that becomes their priorities and I think going back, you know, all credit back to the um, UK Tony Blair government back then, because they just went for what's going to make the biggest impact. Uh, DEFRA, Department of Environment, uh, CCS, OK, let's but let's work on that. They, want, they, they really did have a longer term view, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I think, that, that serves as, uh, as a good example. I think the other good example probably is the US where the administrations come in for four years and stay in. They can put things in place that are hard to dismantle by any following administration. And that's, you know, we're seeing a lot of stimulation uh, there now from the bipartisan infrastructure uh, law and the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is really good. And I think in the G20 context, that's going to build projects that's going to lower technology costs through building and deployment 
that then the rest of the world can benefit from as well. So it does have to be feed in, and I would hope the, the US representatives in the G20 have that point in their in their briefings. I mean, you've kind of taken us down that path from, you know, trying to have CCS considered in the CDM to now seeing, I would say, historic funding out of the US through the IRA. Um, I think it's it's in the billions. Where do you suspect CCS progress will go next? Is there any writings on the wall when it comes to um, policy initiatives specifically? Where do you think it'll it'll go? Yeah, I think two things are happening um, that, that gives me optimism. Um, one is just as we were, we were just talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and, you know, that's, was it 286 billion? It's the biggest climate act in the history of the US. In fact, in the history of the planet. And the initial reaction, I think, from the EU was, that's not fair, because it's drawing investment from the EU and the UK to the US, including in CCS, potentially. Um, but what it's done is stimulate the EU to come up with further incentives for industrial decarbonisation through the I'm going to get this in the wrong order, but the Green New Deal, is it? The Green Deal Industrial Plan. Green Industrial Plan, that's yeah. it, thank you. And and the uh, and, the, and the, the act that's meant to follow on from that in the Europe. So the Inflation Reduction Act has raised the bar in terms of policy incentives across the board, electric vehicle plants, electric batteries, CCS, um, and it's made the EU respond more mm -hmm. to keep investment in these low carbon technologies within the EU. So that's positive. Thank you to the US for doing that. The implications and impacts are global, not just US based. And then under the Paris Agreement, as well as the nationally determined contributions that countries have got to submit, they're all looking to 2030, which is fairly short term. So not so many of them have got CCS in, but, but the Paris Agreement also asks for countries to put in their long term low greenhouse gas strategies looking to the mid-century. So basically looking to 2050. Now, about as, as countries do their NDCs, they're putting in the easier to do mitigation options and they have to update and improve those when they get updated subsequently. And they're realising they've put the easy to do mitigation options in, but they have to still go further to get to net zero. And so these long-term strategies, we're seeing about 80% of them have got CCS in. So I find that very promising as countries realise they have to do this. And it's making them look beyond their political horizons as well in that process. And um, that realisation, as countries realise, well, what else are we going to do? Um, we need to stop all of our emissions of CO2. And if, and if you look at the countries who've not put CCS into their long-term strategies, it's really just those small countries such as small island states with no large point sources of CO2. So I think that's promising going forwards. And of course, that Paris Agreement side comes with the caveat, both for the NDCs and the long-term strategies. That's the policy intentions of countries. We want them to deliver those. It's good, and it's good that they're in and out there, but they've got to be delivered as well and achieved. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you noted, the domino effect from the IRA and how the European Commission responded by enhancing their own uh, climate initiatives. So it looks like a little healthy competition is is doing us some favors uh, over here in in, in Europe. Um, so we're coming up we're coming up to time. Any any final words, Tim, that you wanted to to share with our audience? Um, I think the I would just repeat what I said in the G20 and encourage this international cooperation, encourage the setting up of centres of excellence in each country. Um, all countries should consider that and, and then draw upon where there is knowledge and expertise in international organisations to be shared, such as from IAGHG, Global CCS Institute, the SEMCCUS initiative, the Carbon Sequestration Leadership Forum, uh, that's actually been going since 2003 in, in its own uh, sense as well, which is a, a government to government agreement. So there were also more national centres of excellence as well in in uh, the leading countries, such as Canada with the International CCS Knowledge Centre, in the US, in Australia, the CO2CRC, in the US with the Gold Coast Carbon Centre. Uh, they're there to be drawn upon by countries wanting to learn how, whether and how they can do CCS for themselves. Uh, that's my message at the end is encourage more international cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's key to getting CCS scaled up. So hopefully we'll see more of that in the in the future. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you very much for the invite. It's a pleasure to talk. For more details about this episode and podcast, visit globalccsinstitute.com and head to the Multimedia Library.